I am excited about this message. I've never done a message just based around the nativity. You know, if you hear the word nativity, you, you picture the nativity scenes that, that you see in Kirkland's and uh, probably on all of our refrigerators and all of our shelves. It's a nice little wooden manger, and there's usually an angel on top. For a long time, our manger scene at our house had a Yoda on top. We had a little people, uh, a little people, the, the, the little tykes, it's called little... Uh, the nativity scene and our angel got lost, but I had a Yoda ornament that fit on top really well. So we had uh, Yoda as our angel for years. Uh, it's, a, it's another one now, but you got your angel on top. You got the wise men, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and some animals. And uh, for the, for the mo- most part, half part, that, that's pretty true. It makes for a pretty scene. And it's okay. I'm not against having nativities. Obviously, we, we have them in our house. That wasn't really the scene. And we're going to talk about what that scene really looked like, but also the fact that every detail of the day of Jesus's birth and beyond was just so orchestrated by the Lord and had been prophesied and spoken for thousands of years. I'm telling you, every detail right down to the names of the towns are significant in this scene. And uh, I'm going to take a little while this morning uh, just to talk about that. It's, it's going to encourage you because it's not just details. What we see in the birth and the story of Jesus is that we have a God who takes care of us no matter what. And when we seek his kingdom first, remember that verse, Matthew 6, all these things will be added unto you. Listen, the Lord will put you in the right place at the right time. You won't even know you're there when you're seeking his kingdom first, right? When you're seeking his kingdom first, those things that you're called to, that we think about, and, and maybe they seem overwhelming. How am I going to get there? How is this possible? It's a good place to be because first of all, the Lord doesn't call you to things you can accomplish on your own, right? When we think about the things we're called to do, it should overwhelm us a little bit in our flesh, but we have to remind ourselves that's not all we are. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. God is on our side. Who can be against us? When he is with us, man, we can do things we could not do on our own, including get to that thing we're called to get to. It could be overwhelming when you think about it, right? But Jesus told us, instead of being overwhelmed, just seek my kingdom. Just do the things you see me doing. Just go after me with all your heart and watch me take care of everything else. That's what we see in the very birth of Jesus, in the very incarnate Lord. We see this story play out right in front of us. It's a beautiful story. And and so I'm excited to dive into that. Um, It's going to be good. I'm going to say a prayer, then I'm going to jump right into it. Father, we love you. I thank you that right now here on Christmas Eve and and on Christmas Day tomorrow, instead of getting caught up in the material things and in the the hustle and in the the flow of the holiday and the busyness, that what we'll be caught up in is your presence and your glory, who you are and the gift that you gave us. I thank you that we're going to get to enjoy all the family time and we're going to get to enjoy the presents, the gifts, the unwrapping, the, the kids getting excited, the food. That's all great and we're thankful. But I thank you that, like we just sang, at the center of all of it, there'll just be an awareness of your presence and this amazing gift you've given us called salvation, relationship with you. We're so grateful. Amen. All right. Well, I think most of us, uh, most of you might know the story of Mary and Joseph, right? The Virgin Mary was chosen by God to 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 birth the Savior. But what we might not just know from the stories 
a little bit about her background and Joseph's background. You know, we, we, God definitely chose Mary because she was a virgin, right? The Lord had to be born through a virgin birth, but that wasn't it. Mary was actually raised. Her, her dad's name, I'm probably saying it wrong, but like Joachim, and he was a scroll scholar. This guy was like a person that worked in the temple, took care of the scrolls, the prophecies. Mary's life growing up wasn't just that she was wholesome and a good kid and a good person. No, she was actually kind of, I would say, born and raised in church. Like she knew the word. She was around it her whole life. And when the Lord was searching the earth saying, man, who, who can I allow, uh, who can I trust to give birth to my son? What man, what woman? And he found Mary probably hanging out in the pews of the church, crawling underneath them. And, and like, like all my kids did their whole lives and skateboarding underneath these chairs, like laying on their back and whatever. I don't know if she was playing temple, but she was definitely basically raised in church. Her parents, her grandparents, this was an important part of their life. And out of being born and raised in the house of God, not forsaken the temple, man, she was virtuous. She heard a word from the Lord that was, think about this, unlike any other word somebody has heard. And she said, yes, if that's what you want, I'm all for it. I mean, I'm thinking about the words I've heard. There was a time years ago, Lisa and I had a trip to Florida planned. And like the day before we heard the Lord say, don't go to Florida. And this was like, wait a minute, what? We were so frustrated. We were like, wait a minute. We had this whole trip planned. We took time off work. I already checked the oil in my car. We got air in the tires. We're going to Florida. But we heard a word, don't go to Florida. And that's another story. I'm glad we didn't. But man, I got frustrated. And I didn't say yes right away when the Lord said, don't go to Florida. Use your time off at home instead. What a hard word that was, right? Meanwhile, years ago, this angel appears to Mary and says, even though you've never known a man, you're going to wake up pregnant. And she's like, okay. All right. I'm your servant. That's awesome that she was able to trust the Lord that much with the word. Joseph actually as well. He was a man of honor and he engaged to marry. All of a sudden his fiance shows up pregnant and he has to believe, number one, her. And then also he gets a visitation, but he gets told something else that no one's ever told. You're going to be the father. You'll be the earthly father of the Messiah. And once again, he said yes. And we're also glad he did. We know he was a carpenter. Uh, one of the things that gets lost in translation, a lot of things get lost in translation from the way the word was written to our English language. There's just a lot in language that we miss. It's we have a phrase for it. It's literally called lost in translation. Even when we go English to Spanish, we lose things. Spanish to English, much less ancient language to modern English, we lose a lot. Joseph is described as a carpenter. That's part of the job. But really, the word used to describe Joseph's occupation is the word tecton. It's the Greek word. It's where we get the word technology. He wasn't just a carpenter. He was, uh, he, Joseph like used the most modern technology. He was a builder. He probably most likely was like a builder of houses and buildings. He lived in Nazareth uh, and, and, and one of the close uh, areas to Nazareth was a city that was like the capital. The Herod was building this city to become basically the jewel of that part of the world. And there was a good chance Joseph, who was a very skilled builder, was a part of a lot of these building projects. In other words, he wasn't 
kind of like he's been portrayed as a poor, simple carpenter who didn't even have the means to take care of his own family. No, God looked down and he found a man from the line of David, just like Mary was from the line of David. And he said, you, Joseph, in line with my servant, David, are, is able, you are able to take care of my son here on earth with all of his needs, from being a father to even financially. And Joseph was chosen to be the father of Jesus. He was a very skilled laborer and most likely got paid very good for that skill. He was a smart, intelligent man. The word says that when you're faithful in something small, God will give you more to take care of. Do we really think God would look down at the earth and find somebody and say, well, you're poor, you don't have much, you're not too good with money. In fact, you've never been able to actually uh, take care of what Jesus called the smallest thing. Let me give you the largest thing in the history of the world to take care of. That's not how the word works. So some simple details there about Mary and Joseph, why they were chosen, something you may not have known Here's the next thing, and this is where we're going to get into the exciting stuff that we're going to be able to apply even to our own lives. Four days before Mary was about to give birth, the Lord tells, well, actually, that's not the Lord in this case. In this case, Herod, who's kind of the governor of their region, uh, had to enforce the words of Caesar Augustus, who was the king of the time, and Caesar wanted to have a census. He wanted to count everybody in the kingdom in order to get more taxes. So everybody, by law, had to go to the land of their ancestors. So we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied. However, Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. That's where they lived. Four days before she gave birth, they got word, you have to go to Bethlehem, the land of your ancestors. David, they were both in the line of David. It was prophesied that there would be a king from the line of David on the throne forever. That was Jesus. So they had to go back to Bethlehem to be counted in this census and pay taxes. So four days before Mary's about to give birth, they got probably on the back of a camel. I don't know, maybe they had a wagon and they made a four day journey. How many ladies in this house right now would willingly say, yeah, let me get on the back of a camel and travel somewhere for four days. I wouldn't want, you wouldn't want to do it in a car. Lisa was barely pregnant with Ava. We were in England and she drove down some of those uh, roads that the Beatles described as long and winding. And let me tell you, we had to stop that car quite a bit because it was not very fun traveling on those long and winding roads uh, being pregnant. Well, this was on the back of a camel for four days and they get to Bethlehem. But this is where this is really cool. Even in, in the names of these towns, there's so much that the Lord, that, G, that the Holy Spirit packed in to the text. This stuff was, I mean, like prophesied and, 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 and arranged in more detail than we could ever imagine. But the, the name Nazareth, the town Mary and Joseph lived in, you know, this translates to the words, a shoot or a branch. And it was prophesied a branch of the house of David, Jesus would be born from Nazareth. And the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread. Take my body, eat of me, my bread of life. It's broken for you. My blood poured out like wine for you. Even the names of these towns spoke to the power, to the greatness, to the Messiah being born. So they traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, four-day journey. When they get there, what do we all know from all the all the Christmas pageants we've ever seen, there was no room in the inn. And that makes sense. There was a census. Bethlehem was a small town, maybe less than a thousand people, but everybody whose lineage could be traced back to Bethlehem had to go back. Like 
it, it's kind of like Gastonia. Like when something happens, that one hotel gets filled really fast, right? Or even like a smaller town than Gastonia. Those hotels and motels get filled fast during travel season. Maybe more like McAdamville. Like McAdamville gets filled up pretty fast when people want to go to Christmastown, USA. And uh, sometimes there's no room in the inn. So the only place they could go was a manger. And that is where we get the image usually of a barn or a little shelter. However, this was a cave, right? This was a cave where sheep would be born and then brought into this cave to be taken care of. This is pretty cool right here. This is one of the things I'm very excited to tell you about. Okay, so we know the shepherds. They're watching their flock. They're in the scene. You got the nativity scenes in your house, those shepherds. Uh, we know a lot more about them than you may think. In Bethlehem, in this area, uh, historically, you know, we know where Jesus was born. In fact, if you go to Israel, you can visit the cave that at least historically and traditionally they say that Jesus was born in. Um, the shepherds in this town were shepherds that raised basically the most special sheep in all of Israel. According to Old Testament law, to be forgiven of sins, if you know any of this history or have read about the Ten Commandments and the story of Moses, there had to be a sheep that had no spots, no blemishes, never had been injured. And from that sheep, a family once a year could take that sheep to Jerusalem. It would be sacrificed. And the sin offering that they made with that sheep would then allow forgiveness for that family. They'd be forgiven. That's how in the Old Testament families received forgiveness. And these shepherds were the ones that raised those sheep, the ones without spot and blemish that were used for the sin offerings. So it wasn't just any shepherds. When the angel appeared to them and said, behold, this Messiah has been born, who John would later say the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. His very birth spoke of that. The shepherds that raised those sheep in the natural ended up there the day he was born, beholding the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Not just in that, in that cave. The manger was specifically a, like a feeding trough. When he was laid in a manger, it was a feeding trough where the animals would get their food from. He was wrapped in... Uh, swaddling clothing. How many times have you heard that phrase, swaddling clothing? Well, there's a lot to that as well. The reason there were swaddling clothing, cloth, in that cave is because when those sheep were born, the ones that had to be without spot and blemish, the ones that were used to offer as a sacrifice for forgiveness of sins, because they had to be without spot and blemish as soon as they were born, the shepherds would take those swaddling clothing, the strips of cloth, and they'd wrap it around the lamb's legs. They would wrap it around his body so that as he was standing and even learning to walk, they wouldn't fall and harm themselves. The swaddling clothing protect them from getting injured. As soon as those lambs that were born to provide forgiveness for families, they'd be wrapped in those clothes. Jesus, the lamb of God, was born placed in the same manger these sheep were placed in and wrapped in the same type of clothing. That's what the swaddling clothing means. His very birth and the things around it spoke prophetically of the sacrifice he was going to make. It's no wonder those shepherds became the very first evangelists. We get this great verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 17. When they had seen this, the shepherds, when they had seen the, the arrival, when, can you imagine they walk into the scene? They have an angel 
this angel appears and says, the Messiah has been born. And they walk into the cave and just like the scene they have seen thousands of times with the own sheep they raise for the sin offerings. They see a baby laying in the same place those sheep lay, wrapped in the same clothing. That's why the angel said, you'll know him when you see him. Well, how would they know what that baby looks like? There could have been other babies around. But they got there and they saw a baby and they said, that is the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. In Luke 2, 17, when they had seen this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were astounded and wondered at what the shepherds told them. Have you ever wondered about what somebody told you? People were wondering about these guys. But Mary treasured all these things, giving careful thought to them and pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Man, that's awesome. We know when they arrived to, to see Jesus as a baby that there was also in the sky a multitude of heavenly hosts. That's a great phrase. I have a definition. This is what the actual word multitude means in the Greek. A colossal, enormous, huge, immense amount, or a massive number. So we're not talking about like six angels with trumpets or one angel on top of the manger or one Yoda on top of the manger in the case of our house, right? We're talking about in the sky appeared. So they weren't hiding. They somehow made their way from the spiritual world to the natural world because you could see them. A multitude of heavenly hosts in the sky. The word host is not just pretty angels with harps and pianos and and whatever else you imagine these angels with, it means army. It means not just an army. The word host means an army ready for war. These are soldiers in full gear, right? So I don't know what you're imagining, but I always imagine the armor of God, right? When I'm thinking of full gear, maybe breastplate, maybe a helmet of salvation, a spear, a sword, shields. I don't, I don't know exactly what their weapons look like. But I know there was a massive, enormous, huge amount, a huge army appeared in the sky when Jesus was born. And I, I, I'm pretty sure we know why, too. In the book of Exodus, going back a little bit, Moses is invited to come to the top of the mountain and see God. However, Moses, in a sinful state, God says, you cannot see me at my face and live. So in one of my favorite stories, God with his hand covered Moses' eyes as he walked past him. And then once God was passed, he removed his hand and Moses was able to view God from behind and live. And of course, even just that sight was so powerful, it made his face glow. When he came down the mountain, he had to wear a veil because his face was shining so bright. That makes sense. Man in a sinful state can't view the face of God. Well, here's something we might not have thought about. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. And he describes some angels. And he says, with their wings, they covered their eyes as they looked towards the throne of God. So evidently, not only can man not view the face of God and live, sinful man, but even angels weren't able to view the face of God. So when this army of heavenly hosts gets word, however they got word, the Messiah, Jesus, whom you've known, 
whom you have served for thousands and thousands, maybe millions of years, I don't know, the one you've served, your commander in chief, has just been born in the human's world. He's a baby in Bethlehem. This multitude, this army showed up because for the first time in their existence, they were going to get to view the face of their commander in chief. They were so excited. They showed up and they said, let me look at him. Even if we were there, we probably would have just seen a baby. We might've had our doubts. We might've looked at this baby and said, like the people in Nazareth said, that's just Jesus. That's just a baby. How can this be the Messiah? But man, if our eyes had been opened, we would have seen an entire heavenly army in the sky showing up saying, that's him. That's what he looks like. I've always wanted to see his face and now I get to see his face. And that's awesome. That's amazing. We see a baby, they see their commander in chief. Pretty amazing. That's kind of the nativity scene right there. We, I'm going to talk about the wise men. They, they weren't really there. And if you talk to, to Rob, Rob is the in-house expert on the nativity. Really, it should be him up here today. Maybe next year we'll get Rob to do a nativity message. It'd be even more detailed than mine. Uh, or it doesn't have to be even Christmas time. Uh, it, it's a great message that he, that he has about, uh, about this whole scene as well. But, but these, these wise men, they were called magi from the east. They weren't really there at the scene. It took them a couple years to get to where Jesus was. But if you've ever been confused about this timeline, here's where we're at, right? Jesus, uh, well, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They had to go to Bethlehem to be counted in a census, right? Here's something amazing. There have been prophecies uh, in the book of Micah and beyond that said the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, right? This is one of the things I wanted to get to today. One of the things I've already said, Mary and Joseph were seeking the kingdom of God first. How do I know? They had words from the Lord, unlike any other word that's ever been given or has ever been given since. And they said, yes. Did they know the Savior was to be born in Bethlehem? There's a good chance they did not. They did not have the Bible app, right? They didn't have a Bible on their shelf. They didn't have the scrolls of the prophets at, uh, they, they couldn't even just go into the temple and say, hmm, I want to read from the scroll of Micah today, where it says the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. From what we know of Mary and Joseph, had they known that there's been prophecies that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, I think they'd have gone on their own probably. Well, we know you're pregnant with the Messiah. We better get to Bethlehem. I don't think they would have left four days before he was going to be born, right? So here's a great point. If you want to take something you can apply to your life today from this message, there's lots you can, but take this one specifically. When you're seeking the kingdom first, God will get you to where you need to be. You're not on your own. You don't have to freak out if you think you make a mistake. You don't have to get overwhelmed at the journey. Just seek the Lord. Wake up in the morning and instead of going to your to-do list first, go to the Lord and say, hey, I got my list. I got my ways, but what are your ways for me today? What do you want me to do today? He might say, hey, your list is great. Go for it. Check them off. Who knows? That might be it for the day. But even when we don't know or we're uncertain, when we seek the kingdom first, we will be in the right place at the right time. They were in the right place at the right time. So they were in Bethlehem, probably not for too long, enough time to be counted for the census. And then they made their way back to Nazareth. Two years go by. Jesus is about 
two years old, a little bit older, a little bit younger, but about two years go by. And then Herod, who again is the governor, he's, he's in charge of, of the town of Nazareth and uh, reports to the, to the emperor, Caesar Augustus, right? He is he's, uh, just having a normal day, probably eating. Right? What's that, that, that great meme I love? What do you do it, when it's going to snow? Probably just make breads and desserts and get all fat and sassy. He's probably just eating breads and desserts, getting all fat and sassy. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up at his doorstep and they say, hey, there is a big company from the east on their way to your quarters right now. And it looks like it's the Magi. That's not good news for Herod. This group of wise men from the east, we see three Three kings, right? They weren't technically kings of a kingdom, but they were kind of like magicians, prophets, uh, spiritual advisors that realistically had more power than most kings. If this group would have shown up even to the emperor's office, Caesar Augustus, and said, this is your last day as emperor, Caesar might have had something to say about it, but there's a good chance his own army would have turned against him and taken him off the throne at the word of these three guys. And it wasn't just three guys on a camel. They would have been traveling with hundreds and hundreds of people. Hundreds. So they show up. Two years later, Herod is very nervous, and he knows the prophecy that the Savior's born in Bethlehem. So he sends him to Bethlehem, says, hey, come back and tell me if you find him, because he's going to get rid of this kid. They had a word from the Lord. They went to Nazareth. They laid down silver uh, they write down gold, frankincense, and myrrh at his feet. And again, it wasn't just these little items that we see in our nativity scenes. They would have given massive amounts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to an earthly ruler like Herod. He thought they were coming to take him off the throne. And when they said the Messiah, the king of the Jews has been born, he was very nervous. That's why he wanted to get rid of that kid. They laid down enough wealth at the feet of Jesus to fund his life. And that's important. Here's the last point I'm going to make about this scene today. We're all going to get out of here. Dang it. Two minutes. <laughs> if I could turn back time. Uh, might get there. Might get there anyway. They laid down wealth at the feet of Jesus. And that was important because Around that same time they were there, the angel appeared to Mary and Joseph again. They said, Herod is going to come after your son. You have to flee to Egypt. That's where Egypt comes in. So Jesus is two, and the family flees to Egypt on the run. Egypt was a foreign land. Joseph would not have been allowed to work. He would not have been allowed to make money. Egypt was a little bit, I heard someone describe it as like Las Vegas, very, very expensive, filled with carnality, paganism, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So picture like a, an ancient version of Las Vegas, yet there's no way you can make money. You have to just live there with your family for three years. You can't have any income. You have to pay for everything and you can't stay in one place for too long. You'll be nomadic the entire three years. All that wealth that was laid down at the feet of Jesus was then able, God provided for them to be on the move without being able to work. He provides at all times, at any times. You might be thinking, well, that was Jesus. That's his kid. No, no, no. You actually have the same word on the inside of you that Jesus had. You have the Holy Spirit. When God says, yeah, I'll take care of my son, right? Yes, Jesus, but you're also his son. You're his daughter. You got the same thing on the inside of you. The same spirit that dwelled in Jesus dwells in you. God doesn't see a difference between you 
and Jesus. I know that's, that's, that's kind of extreme for somebody, but let me tell you, on the inside, you look just like Jesus. Yes, we still have this flesh, right? We may not look like him with our features. We still make mistakes. We know Jesus never made a mistake, but God himself said, I will no longer see your mistakes. That's not how he views you. We don't view each other or even ourselves the way God views us. He looks at you and he sees your born again spirit. He sees the same spirit he saw inside of Jesus. And I'm so grateful because I know on my own, I mess up. I know on my own, I make mistakes. I know if God looked at my flesh, he'd see the same thing he sees in everybody else's flesh. I'm so grateful that he doesn't. So grateful that he sees something higher, something greater in me, and then invites me to take part in that. I don't have to make all these mistakes, right? I can take part in who I am in the spirit. Man, I got so many more details I could tell you about these magi. They were the way the, they knew the Savior was going to be born because Daniel, the same Daniel from Daniel and the lion's den, they were reading his prophecies. These guys were kind of in, in the same order of, of, of the magi magicians that Daniel would have been a part of when he was in Babylon thousands of years before. The star they followed, there's a good chance it could have been uh, an actual star in the sky that would have an alignment of stars that would have been so bright and would have also had to happen thousands of years before to see that light could have popped into the sky at that time and they knew from the prophecy of Daniel, they saw his star. However, there was some supernatural aspect because once they got to Herod, it actually says that light moved and led them to Nazareth where they found the baby the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these gifts themselves, as I invite the band to come back up, these gifts themselves speak to the life of Jesus. Gold speaks to his royalty. Frankincense speaks to the priesthood. The priest used frankincense to burn incense in the, in the temple. And the myrrh is an embalming fluid. It spoke to his death. The very gifts they laid at his feet that provided for them when they were in Egypt, and I believe beyond Egypt, spoke prophetically to the life that he was going to live. So many details, but when you picture your manger scene, you're going to think of these now. Think of Mary and Joseph. Think of the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothing, laying in a manger, just like the sin offering lambs that were born. The shepherds showing up and seeing a, a, a man, a baby wrapped in the same clothing that they wrapped their lambs in. A multitude of heavenly hosts showing up in full army gear to view the face of their commander-in-chief. This was not a normal scene. Two years later, these royalty, this, these powerful, maybe the most powerful people on earth, these magi, showing up, worshiping at his feet, laying down these gifts that then provided for Mary and Joseph on a journey they didn't know they were going to be on until the day God said, go. Spent three years in Egypt, if you're wondering. They spent about three years in Egypt. So from the time Jesus was two until he was five, then they made their way back to Nazareth, where they were at for the next 25 years. Man, it's a powerful story with more details than we can get into by 1143. But I hope a couple of the things you're taking away from this Christmas Eve service here together Besides just the time we spent in the Lord's presence, which is invaluable, which is the greatest place to be. Besides that, remember that God has every detail taken care of. When he says he's got a hope in the future for you, it's not just like, 
oh, you'll live a, a good life. You'll do some good things. No, he knows the number of hairs you have on your head. You're living in the city you're living in on purpose. You're in the family you're in on purpose. You're in this place today on purpose. You got a chance today to make decisions that will impact the rest of your life. Seek the kingdom first and watch God line your life up every detail every day. Trust him that even if you're four days away from giving birth on the back of a camel, he's got you covered. He'll provide. If you go on a three-year journey to a land that's a foreign land and you can't work, you can't make money, he'll provide. He's no respecter of persons. Yes, Jesus was God incarnate, but he was also a man just like you and I. And God's promises are true. They were true for Jesus, and you see him operate perfectly. Well, they're true for us as well. Amen. Let's stand and worship and respond to the Lord for a few moments with worship. 